This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 17, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Jolie Lamb joins Alexa Billow to discuss how seagrass can reduce coastal pollution, protecting people and corals. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast comes from AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its members. Join them in serving science and society at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on monkeys that can pass the mirror test. We've definitely talked about the mirror test before on the podcast. This is the idea that if an animal can recognize itself in the mirror, it has some kind of concept of self or other. Which animals do we know can do this, Dave? Well, so it's typically animals that have complex or what we consider complex cognition. So we're talking about great apes, dolphins, elephants, um, and not a lot of other animals. And the reason this ability to you know, recognize yourself in the mirror is considered important is because it, it suggests that animals sort of have a sense of self. They have a sort of a conception of themselves as a being, which is you know, thought to be sort of this complex way of thinking about um, themselves in the world. And that's why scientists have thought, you know, and, and, and it's been sort of reinforced by some of these tests, that only sort of these cognitively complex animals can do this. Right. So great apes can do this, like gorillas and chimpanzees. Right. But monkeys have not been shown to spontaneously identify themselves in mirrors. But what about, you know, just say we train them to recognize themselves? How would one do that? And uh, does it work? Well, so, you know, the traditional way this test is done is the animal's put in front of the mirror, obviously, and then there's a, a colored mark that's put somewhere on their body. And the idea is if an elephant is looking in the mirror and all of a sudden sees like a red mark on its head, it's going to try to remove that mark because it doesn't like it there. And that's proof the elephant could actually look in the mirror, see the red dot, but also know the red dot is on its own head. Um, and monkeys right. can't do this. But the question is, is it really that monkeys can't recognize themselves in the mirror or are they just sort of not used to this kind of test? Are they just like not good at this kind of test? And if there's a way to improve the test, 
would monkeys do better? And that's basically what the new study is about. The researchers actually trained the monkeys. They actually used a laser pointers and they had the monkeys sit in front of mirrors. And they really got the monkeys used to not only looking at a laser pointer that they could actually see directly, but also if they could see these dots when they were just reflected in the mirror. So maybe the dot was placed on an object the monkeys could see in the mirror, maybe a table or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if the monkeys were able to touch the dot, then they got a treat. And basically what the researchers were doing was training the monkeys to say like, look, if you see the reflection of something in the mirror, that's sort of something you should should pay attention to. And you could be able to find that in physical space somewhere. Exactly. And then so the next step was basically, okay, now that the monkeys are trained to do this, will they pass the mirror test? And what was really interesting is that they did, when the researchers then did the mirror test on the trained monkeys, all of a sudden the monkeys were able to, you know, pick out a red dot that was placed on their head or the shoulder, some place they may not easily be able to see without the mirror. Mm -hmm. What was even more interesting is once the monkeys sort of got this idea that, hey, that's me in the mirror, they started sort of doing the things that maybe you and I would do in the mirror, like, uh, you know, looking at their teeth, uh, combing their hair, and even inspecting their genitals. Now, I'm not saying you or I would do that, but <laughs> not surprising that a monkey might do that if, if all of a sudden they got a, a clear view at something that they may not otherwise have a great view at. Right. Well, if this works, you know, if you can train a monkey to see themselves in the mirror, they now can pass the mirror test. Does this mean that the test can't distinguish between animals with a sense of self and those without? Or are we kind of teaching them about themselves by exposing them to this mirror training? Yeah, it really depends who you ask. Some experts say, you know, this really invalidates a lot of what we've been thinking about the mirror test, that in fact, maybe a lot of other animals can do it too. They just haven't been properly trained. But other experts say, well, if you have to do that training in the first place and they're not showing this spontaneous recognition, it still does show that there's a difference between animals like monkeys that really need to be trained and animals like chimpanzees. And that may reflect some cognitive differences between these species. Is there a way to tell apart which thing is going on here, whether or not what, what the training might be doing and, and how valuable the mirror test actually is. Right. So one thing the researchers are thinking about doing is actually looking at the brain patterns of the monkeys that are involved in these mirror tests and to see if their brain patterns are somehow reflective of their ability to self-recognize. Now we have a story on a live malaria vaccine. Normally, vaccines are made up of a weakened form of the infectious agent or just pieces but making a malaria vaccine from the disease-causing parasite, plasmodium, they haven't worked out so well. Recently, researchers have tried something new, a live vaccine. How does this work, Dave? Well, yeah, this is a pretty controversial strategy. And what they're doing is they're basically injecting live plasmodium sporozytes. And these are the form of the parasite that establishes the infection in humans in the first place. And they're injecting these directly into the veins of people, nine people in this study. And at the same time, these uh, volunteers actually get an anti-malaria drug called chloroquine, which helps disable the parasite. So they're getting a live parasite, but they're also getting a drug that sort of keeps the parasite under control. And the point here is that later, if they're again exposed to malaria, they won't get an infection. Right. And that's the idea to see if this live treatment actually works as a vaccine. And that's actually what the researchers saw. They saw that in the nine people that got the injection, up to 10 weeks later, they were still being protected from further infection by the malaria parasite. This has been shown before that giving people malaria, a live malaria, and treating at the same time makes them impervious to later infections. But the news here is that the delivery mechanism is no longer 
being bitten by a mosquito, right? right? right. You don't have to get bitten by a mosquito. Um, but where are they getting this material to inject people? Where are they getting live malaria from? Well, the company that's behind the strategy is actually harvesting and purifying these uh, sporozoites from the salivary glands of mosquitoes. And that sort of, as you said, Sarah, that 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 obviates the need to, to throw a bunch of mosquitoes at somebody to uh, to vaccinate them. They can actually just sort of inject these sporozoites directly into people. Okay, not requiring people to get bitten does seem like a good step, but even then, requiring people to get infected with malaria and take drugs at the same time, how would you deploy this? I mean, would you infect an entire country with malaria at the same time? Well, that's kind of what the company is sort of proposing. They're saying that their models have shown that if 90% of a population receive these injections, also with a malaria drug on top of that for about six months, it would halt malaria and eliminate the parasite. Now, that's a lot easier said than done, according to people who have actually spent a lot of time in Africa and know how logistically difficult it is to get that kind of coverage. You also have the problem that what if you don't protect some people with a drug or maybe these antimalarial drugs don't work for some people, then you're essentially then you're essentially injecting thousands of people with malaria and those people are going to get malaria. Well, so if we're talking on a smaller scale, is this something that may be doable in the near future? Even if you can't uh, vaccinate an entire population, if you've got maybe a group of people uh, moving into an area or you've got a group of scientists moving into an area or doctors or something like that, this might be a better way to protect them from the disease. And, 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 and one other caveat is we actually still don't know how long this approach is protective for. So the researchers showed it's for 10 weeks, but obviously you want a lot more protection for that, especially in people who are native to these areas. Last up, we have a story on wind turbines based on insect wings. Wind energy is clean energy, but it's not very efficient. The turbines only work optimally in the right windy conditions. Now researchers have looked to a biological solution to this problem, the wings of insects, to improve on the design of these energy capturing devices. Let's start with the way wind turbines work. It's not about maximum speed. You know, more and more wind makes the blades go faster and faster. That's not the ultimate goal, right? No, there's actually a couple problems with that. The first is if these blades are spinning super duper fast, it's going to cause a catastrophic failure of the turbine, which you certainly don't want. But also researchers have found that as the blades spin faster and faster and faster, they basically become almost like a wall rather than a rotator. And that actually blocks the wind from flowing past and therefore you're not generating energy. Um, so the idea is, can we make these blades more flexible and thus more efficient? Insects wings, in this case, we're talking about bees and dragonflies, are doing something slightly different. They are more flexible. And what, what does this flexibility do that makes them more efficient in uh, interacting with the wind? Yeah, they're basically able to direct the aerodynamic load in the direction of their flight. And therefore, they're basically able to adapt to the wind. So if the wind's really strong or the wind's really light, the wings can sort of move in certain ways and sort of be hit by the wind in certain ways that allows them to still be very efficient, which is something you don't have with these very rigid uh, wind turbine blades. Now, that's not done passively in an insect, but here what they did was they made, they added flexible blades to a MIDI turbine. What kind of efficiency gains did they see when when they made this change? 
So they tried three different blade types. One was a very rigid blade, like like today's wind turbines have. One was a sort of somewhat flexible blade, and one was a very flexible blade. Now, the very flexible blade actually wasn't very good because it was too flaccid, and therefore it wasn't really producing much power. And of course, the very stiff ones are sort of as inefficient as today's uh, wind turbine blades. But the ones that were sort of in the middle really did well. In fact, they created up to 35% more power than the rigid blades. This seems like a huge increase in efficiency, but we are talking about mini turbines. Is it going to be difficult to engineer this advance into the gargantuan turbines used in today's wind farms? Well, that's the team's next step. They really want to scale this up and see if this continues to hold in a larger and more realistic model. Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about mosquito repellents and which ones don't work very well, or if maybe if all of them don't work very well. <laughs> also a story about fasting, adding fasting to your diet for several days a month. New research has shown this can actually have a powerful effect potentially on uh, slowing aging and maybe even treating some age-related diseases. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a dramatic drop in applicants to U.S. engineering schools and what's behind that. Also a story about a U.S. panel um, giving the cautious yellow light to human embryo editing research. And also, uh, we'll have some reporters on the ground uh, this coming weekend in Boston at the annual meeting of AAAS, and we'll be reporting a lot of stories from the conference, so be sure to check out the site this weekend and the following week to see all of our coverage from the meeting. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. Plants have a remarkable ability to decrease harmful microbes in the water. Wetlands, mangrove forests, and other ecosystems act as a buffer against our urban runoff. As such, they provide a valuable ecosystem service. Seagrasses have been largely overlooked until now. Jolie Lamb is here to talk about the ecosystem services that seagrass can provide. I'm Alexa Billow. Jolie, thanks for being here today. Great, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of ecosystem services. It's this notion that nature provides a service to us simply by existing and doing its thing. So what kinds of services are we talking about in this case? Well, nature can provide a range of important services. For example, I'm a coral reef scientist. So coral reefs are really important for stopping coastal erosion, and they can protect people from storm surges. But they're also really important to provide income from tourism, and they can provide food and cultural significance to many people. Is it possible to place a dollar value on such a broad range of things that nature can do for us? It is, and we're starting to do that now. For example, with coral reefs, it's estimated that the loss of coral reefs is jeopardizing about 375 billion dollars in goods and services that they provide to us each year. In the paper, you studied seagrass habitats around islands that lack modern sanitation. You show that the water adjacent seagrass meadows has fewer harmful pathogens than water where there isn't a seagrass meadow. What kinds of pathogens did you look at? Why do we care about those particular ones? Well, we specifically looked at bacterial pathogens that are associated with outbreaks of diseases with humans, but also other marine organisms. And for you and me, this is really important for a lot of reasons because waterborne diseases 
cause about 1.5 million human deaths each year. And a lot of these are just avoidable if we had access to clean water. So that's why it might be important to know if seagrass can actually help us in the fight against some of these diseases. Yeah, that's correct. And by reducing some of these waterborne pathogens and improving the water quality, we can potentially reduce disease outbreaks, but also put a monetary value on the services that seagrasses provide to us. And this can really give us incentives to protect these ecosystems that are currently under threat from human activities. So you could potentially improve sanitation in the communities that you studied by laying down a bunch of modern infrastructure, but you could also protect the ecosystem that is already there. Yeah, that's correct. It's much more cost effective just to protect the ecosystem than reinvent the wheel and put in infrastructure. In the paper, you say that seagrass by itself is good, but an intact seagrass ecosystem is better. And you studied seagrass ecosystems in situ. Why is it better to have the whole thing? Well, we wanted to study it in the field to look at its actual application to us rather than controlled studies. Seagrass ecosystems have a lot of other organisms that live inside of them, and these can be things such as clams and sponges, and they've been shown to be able to filter pathogens from the water column. Do we know what specifically the seagrass is doing to remove pathogens from the water? Other plants have been shown to do similar things, lots of other different kinds of plants. How do they do it? Do we know? There could be a few mechanisms. Uh, Plants add oxygen into the water as a result of photosynthesis. And this is really interesting because wastewater treatment plants that are built infrastructure treatment plants often use pulses of oxygen to deactivate bacterial pathogens. So this could be another mechanism in which the seagrass meadows are reducing the pathogens. Is there anything special about seagrass in particular, or is this a thing that plants do in general that you're trying to provide more broader evidence for? Seagrasses are really cool. In laboratory trials, scientists have shown that they can isolate chemicals from the seagrass blades, and these can kill numerous bacterial pathogens that can cause diseases in humans and fishes and other invertebrates. So there's a lot of interest in this area now for developing new antibiotic treatments. How could they lead to antibiotic treatments? Just by killing the bacteria? Yes. So now we've exhausted a lot of antibiotic treatments in terrestrial environments. So now scientists are starting to look into the ocean. So chemicals that oceanic organisms exude that could be killing pathogens to protect themselves. And we could benefit from it too. Yeah. So you mentioned that you specialize in coral reefs, actually, rather than seagrass. And there's a very interesting section in the paper where you talk about how seagrass can be benefiting the coral. What's it doing? Well, what we found is that when the seagrass meadows were bordering the coral reefs, there was a 50% reduction in the diseases that the corals had. And we know that corals um, get bacterial diseases, but we also know that corals are prone to being smothered by sediment or getting diseases as a result of sediment sitting on their tissues. And seagrasses are really cool because they can pull in and stabilize the sediment and possibly protect the corals by removing bacteria, but also by removing the sediment on their tissues. And this ability that seagrass has to clean the water, as you touched on it, has some very profound economic consequences, potentially. One thing you talk about in the paper is aquaculture. 
what does seagrass have to do with that? What else can it do? So seagrasses are called the marine powerhouse because they support commercially important fish nurseries. And these feed millions of people. They also can make the ocean less acidic. They stabilize sediments, as I mentioned earlier, to stop erosion and make the water clean. And they are actually one of the most efficient stores of carbon in the ocean. They're kind of like the rainforest. They can help clean the air. That's impressive. You don't really think of, uh, at least I don't really think of seagrass as comparing in any way to the Amazon, but it seems like they have similar ecological roles. They do, and it's mainly because we don't see them. They're kind of the, what I call the ugly stepchild of the ocean. They're <laughs> a little bit forgotten about. Well, it's fascinating. Jolie, thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jolie Lamb and colleagues have a paper on seagrass and ecosystem services in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.